This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my intuitive eating online course. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 174 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Angela Garbez, author of the amazing book, Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. I just love that title. And we talked about how pregnancy changed her relationship with her body, how writing her book helped her develop greater body acceptance, how our society dismisses body diversity and encourages us to hate our bodies, the importance of self-compassion, the lack of diversity in science and medicine. So much great content. It was really far-ranging conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Shauna, who writes, Hi, Christy. For the past several months, I've read Intuitive Eating, listened to your podcasts, followed your Instagram page, and read your blogs. I've been trying to eat intuitively since August, but one thing I can't seem to get a grasp on is my sugar intake. I don't gorge myself with brownies and cookies like I used to now that I know they are not quote-unquote off-limits. However, I find that I need a sweet treat every day. I try to do what the book says and eat a meal, something that sounds good to me, before indulging in the treat, but inevitably I end up needing that cookie or candy bar or piece of cake every day, and sometimes more than once a day. Am I really addicted to sugar, or am I just not getting intuitive eating? I need help. Thank you. So thanks, Shauna, for that great question. Uh, and before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, just sort of quick answer is that it's totally normal and okay to eat sweets every day. You're absolutely not addicted to sugar. It actually is not even possible to be addicted to sugar anyway. The behaviors that get labeled as sugar addiction are actually just responses to sugar deprivation and energy deprivation. And when people or animals have consistent access to sugar, compulsive behavior around sugary foods disappears like you've seen in your own life, right? So you're no longer binging on sugar you're no longer compulsive about cookies and brownies. You're just having those foods when you want them, and it's totally okay. So you can check out episode 80 and episode 139 for in-depth discussions about why sugar addiction and food addiction in general really aren't a thing. And if you're into science, you can also check out the paper Sugar Addiction, The State of the Science, which is from the European Journal of Nutrition. Just trigger warning for that and all scientific studies because they usually have some kind of weights or BMIs or other problematic numbers. So that is the good news. The sugar addiction thing is not real. But I can understand why you would be worried because diet culture thoroughly demonizes sugar, especially in this day and age. So everybody is panicked about it. And in fact, diet culture really makes us feel like we're addicted to sugar by depriving us of sweets. And also because it, it sort of foments this idea that sugar addiction is a thing because then we don't end up having to look at the real culprit, which is diet culture itself. 
So that's especially true with the wellness diet, the sneaky new 21st century manifestation of diet culture that pretends to be all about wellness, but is really actually all about hardcore demonizing and cutting out foods, including sugar. But just like any other diet, the wellness diet doesn't quote-unquote work long-term for any but a tiny percentage of people. And for everyone, it really interferes with an intuitive and truly peaceful relationship with food. So I would encourage you to throw out the wellness diet's rules about sugar and fully embrace and allow yourself to eat the sweets that you want. And that's not going to harm your health. You know, that's the wellness diet sort of big fear that it instills in people is like, oh, my God, eating all this sugar, right? All quote unquote, all this sugar, which means just eating sugar every day is going to irreparably damage your health. And that's not actually true. And in fact, across multiple studies, the people with the lowest median intake of added sugar and the lowest health risks also, like the people with the lowest intake of added sugar tend to have the lowest health risks. But those people still consume the equivalent of a number of sweets every single day, including some foods with added sugar at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, and a full-size candy bar or giant cookie or something of that nature for dessert. So remember, these are people with the lowest health risks and the lowest average sugar consumption, and they're still eating that much sugar every day. So it's not like you have to totally give up sugar to be in good health. You can eat a variety of foods that include, yes, you know, diet culture darlings like protein, fats, veggies, and fruits, and the foods that diet culture currently demonizes, like carbs and other sugars and dairy and gluten, and still be in good health and not be putting your health at risk. So you don't just have to eat the diet culture darlings. You can also eat the foods that it criticizes, that it condemns, that it demonizes, and you'll still be in good health. I myself eat dessert every single day, along with other sweetened foods throughout the day, and I have for years, both when I was growing up as an intuitive eater and I didn't really think about it. I just was allowed to make the choices that I made, and I had, yes, you know, regular meals with protein, fat, and veggies and all the stuff, but I also had free access to snacks and sweets and carbs and all the stuff that I wanted and, you know, was able to find my way and maintain good health for the first 19 years or so of my life. And then, of course, I got waylaid by diet culture in my 20s, but came back to it in my late 20s and early 30s. And so now for the last eight years or so that I've been an intuitive eater again, I also continue to eat dessert every day and eat sweetened foods every day. And now having come back to intuitive eating via this circuitous recovery from diet culture and really sort of winding path out of disordered eating, I now really have a huge appreciation for the role that sweets play in our lives and the role of just being able to choose whatever we want and eat for pleasure and not just eat for sort of nutrient purposes the way that the wellness diet wants us to. And actually, cultures around the world have had sweets built into their everyday menu for millennia. So having some sweetness is a totally natural thing. It's something that exists for a reason. And in fact, sugar helps give us necessary energy, which we don't get from our regular consumption. And it gives us pleasure, which we may not get from every single meal as well. I mean, hopefully we're getting pleasure in all of our food, but it's a great added source of pleasure to have a sweet or a dessert. And sugar may even help facilitate digestion when eaten after a meal, which might be why sweets evolved independently to be a part of meals in so many diverse cuisines. Like we have desserts of all kinds around the world, right? And that is 
Those things evolved independently for a reason. So stop beating yourself up for eating sweets every day and give yourself full, unconditional permission to eat them whenever you want, whenever you desire. And then you can listen and respond to your body and your brain's desires rather than reacting to the diet mentality telling you that you're not, quote unquote, supposed to eat sweets. And just from some of the phrasing in your question, I can tell that the diet mentality is still hanging on for you in the form of labeling these desires for sweets as bad or problematic or scary and indulgent, quote unquote, you use the word indulge. And so I would really look at what beliefs you're still holding on to about sweets and what you're telling yourself about the kind of person who eats sweets every day and that it's a bad thing to do that and see if you can push back on that by using some of the evidence that I gave you in this talk, as well as continuing to explore how you feel personally when you eat what you want versus when you come down on yourself and put conditions on yourself for what you're allowed to eat. Because truly, intuitive eating is about full, unconditional permission to eat anything you want at any time you desire, and therefore the ball is in your court, and then you get to decide. You truly are in charge. Whereas with the diet mentality and diet culture, it's something outside of you that's in charge, right? That's setting the rules, and you're having to follow the rules or rebel against the rules, and so you're not truly in charge in that case. So intuitive eating is about putting you fully in charge, fully in the driver's seat of your own food choices and allowing you to say, yes, I'm going to honor my desires. I'm going to, you know, think a little bit about gentle nutrition and make sure I get meals that are satisfying and stuff. Probably won't feel so great if I eat nothing but cake every single day for the rest of my life, but I'm allowed to do that if I want to because Again, the ball is in my court. I'm in charge. I'm in the driver's seat. And if I want to make that choice, I'm allowed to make that choice because I have bodily autonomy. And also, maybe it's not going to feel so great to eat nothing but cake every single day for the rest of my life, but I still might want to eat some cake every single day for the rest of my life along with other foods. And that is totally okay. So with intuitive eating, again, you're the one in charge. Diet culture and diet mentality are not in the driver's seat anymore. And so to the extent that you're still being controlled by the diet mentality and potentially acting out of its rules or rebelling against its rules, you're not fully immersed in intuitive eating yet. So I would just keep practicing, keep exploring, keep pushing the limits of what is even more permission that I can give myself? What, what's even more unconditional permission that I can give myself? Because right now you've got some conditions on your dessert eating, right? You're like, okay, I'm, it, nothing is off limits, but it's bad to be eating it every day. That's the thing that you're still telling yourself. So the unconditional permission sort of alternative to that would be to say, nothing is off limits and I'm allowed to eat it every single day, every single second if I want to. And so now do I want to? Like, let's explore what I actually want. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you're ready to take your intuitive eating practice to the next level, come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You'll get to ask me all your questions and get exclusive access to hundreds of answers to help you troubleshoot all the issues that come up on the path to intuitive eating and really suss out those subtle levels of the diet mentality and diet culture so that you can truly make peace with food and learn how to trust your body. 
You'll also get access to a private Facebook group exclusively for course participants so that you can get tons of community support and individual guidance as you work to heal your relationship with food. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. We're brought to you today by Poshmark. Instead of buying new things, head to Poshmark to shop from millions of closets across America. I love Poshmark as a tool for recovery because it's a great way to clear out your closet of the clothes that are triggering and uncomfortable and get new ones that feel great at really affordable prices. Just download the free Poshmark app to shop from tons of brands across the size and gender spectrum, including some great plus size options. When you see something you want, simply make the seller an offer so that you can get items at the price that works for you. I just scored three great wool sweaters in really nice condition for the price that I would have paid for one if I'd bought it new. And when you're ready to clean out your closet, which I highly recommend in recovery from diet culture, listing on Poshmark is super easy. You just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship it to the lucky buyer. No more waiting in line at your local thrift store just to leave empty-handed. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. We're also brought to you today by LinkedIn. The right hire can make a huge impact in your business or practice. I know I wouldn't have gotten where I am today with the podcast and with the rest of my career if I hadn't found an amazing team to help me produce the show and take care of administrative duties and all the other little moving parts that go on behind the scenes to allow me to keep bringing you new content every week. But finding the right team members can be hard. Instead of just posting on a job board, which most people don't even check, post your job to a place where people go every day to make connections, grow in their career, and discover job opportunities. LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are actually open to new opportunities, so you can only find them on LinkedIn. It's the best way to find the right person who will help you take your business or practice to the next level. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Head over to linkedin.com slash foodpsych and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash foodpsych. Terms and conditions apply. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Angela Garbus. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Well, I had a, I mean, I wouldn't say it was anything, huh, actually, that's such an open-ended question. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I've thought about this, I just realized I I seem remarkably unprepared to answer. (laughs) (laughs) So my strongest memories of food and my relationship to food growing up were, it really is the story of my family, which is an immigrant family. My parents came from the Philippines um, in 1970. And food was very much a mix of cultures. My parents cooked dinner for us pretty much every night and it was really important that we all had dinner together, which really, when I see that now, it's, you know, food was such an important part of my life and it still is. Um, And that was really, I think, born from them. Um, And also because they were immigrants, this isn't something that I realized until later, We grew up in a really, I grew up in a really small town in Pennsylvania and it was rural, mostly white. We were one of few families of color. And this was before even, you know, even in small towns now in supermarkets, there'll be, you know, the the Asian, I'm using finger quotes, the ethnic aisle, you know, with Asian ingredients. 
But that was really before, you know, this is the early 80s, that it wasn't really, there wasn't that much. But my parents cooked Filipino food, at least, I want to say, you know, over half of our meals were Filipino dishes. And even when they didn't have all of the ingredients, they would make substitutions. There's a dish that I grew up eating called Pansit Palabok. And traditionally, it's made from pounding shrimp heads. And my mom used to use Campbell's cream of shrimp condensed soup <laughs> to make it, which now looking back on it, I see how, I think I learned this indirectly though, that you know, food is really a reflection of culture. It's a way for people to stay connected to who they are. It was definitely true for my parents coming to a place that was so far away from where they grew up and so far away from their family. So that was something that was instilled in me from a young age. I think even before I was really conscious of that. The other thing I'll say is that food was, you know, so food is very meaningful, but it was also fun. I mean, we had, um, we successfully had begging campaigns where we were able to get Little Caesars pizza <laughs> for dinner, you know, maybe once a week or once every other week. And we also ate a lot of old El Paso tacos and hamburger helper. So you know, food had both aspects of being really pleasurable and also being really meaningful in our house. And that's really interesting that they they were open, it sounds like, to the sort of American processed food that was popular at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, both of my parents worked full time. So I think that that processed food of the time was, was a convenience for them. And then I also think, you know, I, I loved Filipino food when I was growing up, but I have two older brothers and one of my older brothers did not like Filipino food. And so I think there was an element of appeasing him with that too. And, you know, I think also there's a lot of immigrants and I'd say Filipinos, especially assimilation is a very big thing. And so I think also, you know, there are many reasons for, you know, getting into the processed American food of the eighties. And I think part of that too, was just fitting in. And I think that was a lot of what it was for my brother as well. Mm. Did you experience any of that yourself or was it sort of, did you have enough of the foods that your friends were eating at school or whatever that, that you felt okay about having Filipino food as well? Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I was, a, I've been aware for most of my life from a very young age that I was different. And I think that I've always wrestled with that and, and it's been harder at different points in my life. Um, but as I got older, I definitely grew into that and leaned into that as opposed to struggling with it. And I don't know exactly. I mean, I think that's, you know, when you're young, you kind of, again, before consciousness, you sort of make that choice. And I'm kind of grateful to my young self for doing that. But I definitely, there were times, I mean, I loved Filipino food. I actually just loved the taste of it. And so that was just something that was part of me. But I also, I wanted Lunchables, you know, in my packed lunch. And sometimes my mom would pack me, you know, adobo and rice. And as much as I loved it, I was really aware that, you know, people around me thought it smelled kind of weird or seemed like a weird lunch to have. So it was a little bit of both, I guess. Yeah. Did you ever get picked on or bullied about the difference of your food? No, I, and I would, you know, I'm grateful to my young friends and classmates. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it wasn't picked on or bullied. I mean, there was definitely like, what's that, you know, and not from a place of pure curiosity, <laughs> but I didn't, it wasn't something that was particularly difficult for me. What about your relationship with your body? I'm curious about that piece because, of course, for any, you know, young femme person growing up in this culture, it's like mm -hmm. a pretty fraught thing. And, and I'm curious how your status as a child of immigrants might have 
protected you or or shaped your relationship with your body in some way, but also, you know, just being in mainstream American culture as well? Like, did you start getting any messages about how bodies were supposed to be? And what were those messages? Yeah. Um, well, again, I always knew being brown that I was different. And so I think it's interesting what you said. Sometimes you can be protected by that. And I don't think, I don't know, that's not something that I started thinking about until later and really more so recently how there was an element like i said when i just i think you know again without consciousness it it began it eventually did become much more conscious but this idea i felt like i was never going to fit in totally so i felt almost freed by that it wasn't a source of total torment right i felt like well i'm just going to be me because i can't fake it anyway you know i'm never going to have blonde hair and, you know, at a young age, too, I, I got into a couple of accidents. I was, I had a, like a bike accident and a, and a freak tag accident in a gravel parking lot that led to really big scars on my legs. And I, have, I developed keloid scars, which is something that people of color are more likely to develop than white people. And so they're noticeable scars. I'm 41 now, and they're still on my body. And I think that, you know, again, like there were these things about myself that I couldn't hide. And I just didn't, instead of shrinking into that, I just sort of, I just sort of owned it. And I wish that all, everyone could have that in some ways. I don't, I think it's, you know, when you're young, there's, you know, there's a level of self-consciousness that I'm talking about, but then there's also a level where I, once I sort of decided to just be okay with that, I, I didn't feel as self-conscious. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable too, to have that ability to make that decision as a young person. Yeah. What do you think contributed to that? I'm grateful for this question. I think, you know, at the basis of it all, I was a very loved child. And I think that that, that does so much for someone, you know, and like, I, I'll say that my relationship with my parents is, has, has been complicated throughout my life, you know, and my parents came from a completely different culture. And I definitely was not the little girl that my mother dreamed that she would have. And so even though my relationship with them has gone through a lot of ups and downs over the years, I've never questioned their love for me. And they always encouraged me to be myself. I think that's that foundationally is probably the root of it all. Oh, yeah, that's huge. Such a rare thing as well to have that kind of basis, you know, feeling secure in yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think also, you know, my dad is someone who, you know, my parents, they came from the Philippines and then they, later in life, we, we were raised speaking only English, even though my parents spoke Tagalog to each other. And only later in life when I, you know, I was in high school and I asked my dad, like, how come you didn't teach us Tagalog? And what he said was, initially my parents had said, well, you know, you guys didn't want to learn that. And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense because how did I learn English? Okay, like that's what you taught me, right? And when I sort of pressed, because this is, you know, in the in the era of my life, when I pressed my parents really hard on everything, <laughs> you know, my dad said, Well, to be honest, and this is what I mean about assimilation, he said, you know, I didn't want you, I was made fun of, and I was, you know, he felt he had been discriminated against because of his accent and because he didn't speak English as well as other people. And he said that he never wanted us to have that. But I bring this up just to say that also I think my dad really modeled to me being proud of who you are, even though that can be difficult sometimes. And I think, you know, in his work and in his life, he, I mean, he could sort of seem a little bit 
difficult <laughs> at times. And I think that it's because he had a strong sense of who he was and he's always been very principled and didn't never really backed down. That's a good quality to have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it yeah, makes people come across as difficult sometimes, but I feel like it helps keep the winds from blowing you around so much. Yeah. And so how did things unfold for you then in, in terms of your relationship with food and your body throughout childhood and adolescence? It's interesting. I mean, with body image and food in my body, it was like for many people, you know, fraught and complicated. And part of that is, you know, in Filipino culture, and as I said, food was such a big part of our life. And Filipinos will joke about how if you're having four people over for dinner, you have to make sure you have enough food for 12. <laughs> so it's definitely a culture of even if you are don't have a lot of money, like food is there's always food. <laughs> and so I definitely grew up in, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to go back to the Philippines fairly often when I was a kid. My, my parents always wanted to visit their families. And so there's this, you know, you're always being encouraged to eat and the food is always around. And so I definitely absorbed that. But I also absorbed that um, Filipinos in general are smaller people, petite people. Um, and my mom is a very petite person. And I definitely felt from going into adolescence that I, I mean, like most people, I felt like I'm huge. <laughs> but I actually did start to put on a little more weight. And I mean, I look at pictures of myself now from when I was in high school, and I can't believe I spent so much time thinking that I was fat and feeling bad about my body because I was a normal, healthy person. <laughs> Not that there's any one vision of what's normal, but I was, you know, a fairly average kid. So I also kind of absorbed this message that, you know, you should eat, 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 but also you're kind of fat and a little bit bigger, <laughs> you know, and that's something that I still probably wrestle with to this day. And I think you know, my love for food, though, that probably won over any sort of a body image issues that I have. And so I kind of just decided that I was, I don't know, I, I liked food, I liked eating, it was pleasurable, it was how I, you know, connected with people. A lot of my closest relationships were formed, you know, in kitchens and over food. And so I think I kind of decided to, to accept a, a complicated relationship with my body right? <laughs> so that I could enjoy food more. That's so interesting. And I think that is kind of, I mean, I talk a lot about diet culture on the podcast and how the culture that we live in, it just makes it impossible to not think about your body and how food is affecting your body and your size and how it compares to other people. And so it's like, if you're going to be someone who loves food and for you pursues a career in food writing too, which I'm curious to get into as well. There's a certain element of like, you have to choose to be okay with, or just put aside and maybe kind of compartmentalize the concerns about your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I actually was a food writer as well in my first career. And so that was very much, I was very much struggling with my relationship with my body and food at the time and actually started a career as a food writer with an eating disorder, like unbeknownst to anyone around me. But that's what made me so interested, you know, starting my career in journalism and deciding on a beat. I was like obsessed with food because I wasn't eating enough of it. And so it drove me to choose reporting on food and like organic farming and all the food industry and food politics beat was really fascinating to me because I had all these messages swirling around in my head about like what was bad and what was good. And mm -hmm. that was very much a part of my journey with food writing as well was like learning how to 
put the food first and put, especially as I got more into like just the writing about pure pleasure, the pure pleasure of food, as opposed to the politics of food. Cause I ended up working at gourmet magazine. So it was like, you know, I had to, had to put aside the weirdness and just focus on the pleasure and excitement of food. And, and it was definitely a, a situation of compartmentalizing. Yeah. And how did that, I mean, I'm so interested in that. Like, how did that I mean, I'm not that anything is so easily resolved, but I'm wondering how that played out for you. Yeah, it's a great question. It was a very winding journey. <laughs> and uh, I ended up, so Gourmet folded in 2009, and I was there in the last last two and a half years before it folded. So I was aware that something was coming down the pike, you know, in terms of the magazine potentially going away. And I decided to apply to go to graduate school and, and become a dietitian and get a master's of public health and nutrition, partly because I was enjoying like covering all that stuff in my work as a food writer, but also partly because I was like, maybe then I'll finally lose weight. Maybe then I'll finally like master my body, you know? So it, it was very much, you know, from the time, like when I was 21 or whatever, when I graduated college and started working in journalism to the time, you know, 2009, that was like six years later, I very much came out of the worst part of the eating disorder. Like it was really an undiagnosed full-blown eating disorder back in the early days when I started and right out of college. And then slowly because of working in food writing and also dating a food writer. So I had to go on food adventures with him and he sort of wanted a, a cool foodie girlfriend and I played the part. I was like, yep, no food issues here. I'm totally cool. Uh, <laughs> and like, uh, you know, just pretended basically throughout that relationship, but sort of put aside, you know, had very much compartmentalized my disordered stuff with food to the time that I wasn't with him. But slowly through all of that kind of like putting on the mantle of someone who was okay with food, I did start to, it was like exposure therapy. You know, I did start to become a little more okay with it and take steps out of that most disordered place. So by the time I went back to school to become a dietitian, I was like, semi-recovered. I was in that sort of gray area that I think a lot of people are in in diet culture where they're like a little weird about food and sort of want to lose weight and manipulate their body and like have some body image issues, but not actively super restrictive or anything that would be diagnosable. So, which then, you know, people sort of are like, well, you're fine, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> considered kind of just normative discontent or whatever about your body and food. And then it took from going through school to become a dietitian was very fraught as well. There's a lot of triggering stuff. But fortunately, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating along the way. And I had been an intuitive eater as a child and up through like until I was 20. So it was really coming home, coming back to this relationship with food that I had always had. But it took a while, you know, and it's I mean all told that was probably over a decade of I'm 37 now, you know, so 15 years to get to this place of of being okay with food that I'm at now and okay with my body, but quite a bit of work and therapy and professional work as well. And I ended up gravitating towards treating eating disorders. And so that really learning about that and starting to specialize in that field kind of solidified what I needed to know about recovery and helped me get the the rest of the way there. But yeah, it was definitely a winding path. Yeah, but I mean, I think we're all on that winding path. You know, even if you're, I don't know. I mean, 
for me, I feel like I'm in a healthy place, but it also feels like it's it's very much a journey that I'm still on. <laughs> but I mean, a, a huge part of that too has been going through pregnancy and becoming a mother, which changed my body in ways. But also that, you know, when I was working as a food writer, was also in my early 30s, which is when my my body changed. I think my metabolism changed and I put on a significant amount of weight when I was doing that. And that's, and I, for a while, I was like, I'm, one day I'm going to lose that weight. And I'm still close to that weight now. And I've also, it's taken a while for me to get to a place where I see that as, that's okay. And I think I've also, as I've gotten older, I've gotten to a place of understanding that a person is not a problem. Like a person can't be a problem, right? And so what is it that's at play? Like when I'm feeling not confident in my body, it's, I can see that it's, there's really ridiculous standards of beauty in this country that have to do with being thin, that have to do with being white. And a lot of that tension that I feel is tension that, that goes against that, not what I actually believe about myself and my own inherent worth and what healthy means. Oh, yes. That is such a great place to be, too. I think, you know, being able to recognize those forces because I think a lot of us spend, and I know I spent my whole 20s basically not recognizing the forces that were at play and not yeah. not fighting back against it. Like, because I think once you, once you recognize them as a form of injustice, it mm-hmm. becomes easier to get angry and to fight back against those internalized norms. Yes. And I think also to be, there's that, I mean, I think that's one benefit, one of the many benefits of aging, right? It's like a little bit of that perspective. And I think, you know, as much as I feel that sort of, you know, rage or wanting to fight against that injustice, I also feel in equal measure a desire to be really generous and kind to myself in a way that I I don't think I was able to be when I was younger. You know, like something that I think a lot about and, you know, again, like becoming a parent was this was something because, you know, with with parenting and mothering, it's so fraught and we tend to really stand in a place of judgment around other people. And I really wish that we didn't do that. And I think, you know, I, I try to remind myself to like be as generous with myself as I am with other people. You know, if a friend came to me about something that she was struggling with, you know, in early motherhood about, you know, something like not being able to breastfeed and wanting to, and deciding to formula feed and supplement, what would I tell her? You know, I'm like, you're doing the best for your baby, I would not stand in judgment of that. I would say that's that's what you need to do, and I'm glad that you can do that. And you know, so I have a six-month-old and a four-year-old, and for whatever reason, this time around, I'm kind of I'm producing less milk. I'm also much busier and working more than than I thought I would be at this stage in her life. And so I'm supplementing with formula. And at the beginning, I felt kind of like a little bit sad about it, and I wasn't sure where that was coming from, right? And mostly I felt grateful that we are able to do this and that she can get everything that she needs. But I was feeling like, am I, am I not doing enough? Right. (laughs) And I remembered to be generous with myself. And I also, I'm not at a place where with my first daughter, I, I was okay with getting up at 3am every night and pumping in the middle of the night. And I, you know, having two kids now, I just don't have the energy to do that. It's like, I need, I need that sleep. I'm caring for more people now. (laughs) But I think that, I mean, I just think it's also important as we recognize the things that, that are wrong, right? (laughs) About how we are made to feel bad about ourselves. I think it's also important to like, we can acknowledge that and also say, okay, like, um, I can't really stop myself from feeling conflicted 
you know, about my body or for feeling momentarily bad about my body. But what if I recognize and just allow myself to sit with that and know that this is something, it's not just me, it's something beyond me. There's something else at play. When I sit with that and allow myself to be gentle with myself, then I can, I find that I can work through those, those feelings more quickly, you know, or they seem, they seem less, slightly less difficult. <laughs> oh, I, I feel you on that. The self-compassion piece, I think, is something that was so missing for me in childhood and, you know, all the way up until I became an adult, really. And learning through recovery to practice self-compassion was one of the keys, I think, to being able to allow myself to just take the steps and have it be messy and have it be, allow myself to not be perfect or pursuing perfection. And that, I think, yeah, because the sort of false idols that we're, we're given and holding up to strive for, it causes so much angst and so much self-flagellation to strive for them. But also it's, I think there's this other, like we can easily just apply that same self-flagellation to like, oh, I'm not being a good enough feminist or I'm not being a good enough, you know, I'm not like rejecting the patriarchy or racist beauty standards enough because they're popping up in my head. And so like, I'm so bad for having this. And it's like, no, also that like, also we need self-compassion there too, to say, yeah, of course this is going to happen. Of course these things are going to pop up for us. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about something when you were talking about your own journey of how that it's a long journey, but I we don't tend to think about people who have survived things as we tend to think of that. I mean, one of the frames our culture puts on that is a, you know, like you're so weak or you're like this victim. And I think about, I mean, I'm thinking about it even more these days over the last two years, especially how it feels like being alive for so many people, for women, for people of color, for, you know, being alive and staying alive is really an act of resistance. And I don't think we, we spend enough time talking about how surviving requires such tremendous strength. So true. Especially, you're right, like in a time like this when it is called into question all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think it put a whole new light on it for me. So I think about it more. But I also think about, you know, to live through close to a decade of disordered eating and to to come out through that, like the amount of strength, you know, that that, that required while also, you know, advancing your career and holding your general life together, you know, like you're expending so much more energy and strength than a lot of other people have to. You know, I'm not saying that that's right, right? And so it's great that you had that. But I mean, I think that we need to give ourselves credit for that. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. And I think that's the case for so many people and, and anyone listening who's struggling, which I think is like pretty much everyone. You know, most of my listeners have their own journeys with food. And I think that's so powerful to acknowledge that you're doing everything else in your life to try to sustain yourself. And you're also battling this huge battle that other people aren't seeing probably that you're not getting recognized for really, but it's, it's piling on an extra load that you have to carry through this yeah. life that's already so difficult, you know? Yes. And so to do that, like to be here every day, to show up for yourself and for others, that's an act of tremendous strength. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm curious to talk about this journey of professionally becoming a food writer mm -hmm. and then also moving into 
writing about pregnancy and bodies in that way. Your book, by the way, is incredible. I just want to shout it from the rooftops. And I'm so glad to, <laughs> to be able to like bring the message to my listeners because it at the end of every chapter, I cried like something somehow just like there was just these soaring, beautiful. It just reminded me so much of the beauty that we're capable of. And yeah, it was incredible. Thank you. That really means a lot to me. So yeah, let's, I would love to hear about how you came to write about, well, first of all, to write about food and then this entree I know into writing about bodies and, and sort of women's health was through breast milk, writing about breast milk specifically. Yeah. So I started writing about food in, gosh, I want to say it was probably like 2006. And I had actually, it was really, it was just, I was kind of in the right place at the right time. I was working in the sales department of an alt weekly, a stranger um, in Seattle. And I was leaving that job and I had a writing background, but I had never really tried to write for the paper. I was working just in the sales department selling ads and I wasn't really very good at it, but that's another thing. So I was getting ready to leave and Dan Savage, who was the editor in chief at the time, emailed me and said, hey, what do you think about submitting a sample food writing piece for us? I know you have a, a writer's background and what do you think? And I was like, why am I being asked to do this? And so it's funny, like, as I was saying earlier, you know, food was such a big part of my life growing up, but I had never tried to be a food writer or anything like that. I, but so when I asked Dan, like, okay, sure, I'd like to do that. Like, why did you ask me to do this? <laughs> he said, well, so we were talking about it. And unbeknownst to me, I had spent the year that I was there having conversations with pretty much every single person in the office he said, you know, you go around every day talking to people about what you made for dinner, where you ate, or like where they ate. And like, everyone wants to go to lunch with you. Like, <laughs> and he was like, it just seemed like you would want to write about food. And it had never occurred to me. Um, but so I like wrote a sample piece. And when I did it, I thought, oh, oh, it, like a lot of things in my life just made sense. And then I started thinking, you know, about my own upbringing with food. And I got into food writing and I, I started thinking about how I got kind of annoyed with how, you know, there weren't a lot of, we're in a better place in food writing where there's more people of color and people from more diverse backgrounds. But, um, you know, at the time it was very, you know, like I'm using air quotes again, you know, ethnic food, right? Even though they're all ethnic, you know, but it was like Asian food and the food that I grew up was really seen as cheap eats or ethnic food. And it wasn't really given the same consideration or space in print as, you know, French food or Italian food. And so I kind of came at it with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. But I was interested in exploring food and telling stories of people like me <laughs> and my own family. And also showing that, you know, the stories that we tell about food, it matters who gets to tell those stories. And food is a reflection of our culture. It's a reflection of our values. It's a reflection of who we are as individuals with idiosyncrasies and histories and stories. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I was never really comfortable writing restaurant reviews, even though I had to do a lot of that. Um, I just liked writing about food and what you were getting at earlier, you know, the food's a way to talk about so many other things. That's what I was doing for years. And act, it's interesting, though, I, I did take a little break because after the economy crashed in like 2008, <laughs> 2007, I was it was much harder to freelance. And I was getting, I was basically being asked to do more for less money. And it didn't feel great. And I actually quit writing. 
And I went back to school and I took, I mean, I have a, I have an English degree, but um, I applied to a graduate school in public health and nutrition. Oh, wow. Yeah, because what I wanted to do was I still wanted to work in food, but I wanted to work with immigrant communities and communities of color because there was this push to, you know, everyone needs to be eating healthier, right? Like, and there's, you know, soaring rates of diabetes, you know, in, in immigrant communities and Latino communities and the native community. But, you know, not everyone is going to just eat kale, right? Which is what I was sort of perceiving was like the message that we were sending people. And so what I wanted to do is to get a degree and then work within these communities to help them to develop, you know, curriculums around healthier diets that were culturally appropriate. And that's what I did. I quit writing and I spent two years taking all the science classes that I did not take throughout college as an English major. I feel you because I was a rhetoric and French major. So same thing. (laughs) So there I was in an organic chemistry class with a 20 year old and I was 35 at the time. I took the GRE, but I was accepted into the program. And so I was going to, I was going to enroll, but then I found out I was pregnant. So I deferred for a year and I thought I'll go back in a year and I was going to wait tables and I, which is what I had been doing when I was taking classes. I was working as a server at a restaurant. But so a week after I gave birth to my daughter, I got a phone call from the same Alt Weekly that I had worked at and written for for years. And they said, we're going to hire a full-time staff food writer. Are you interested in the job? And it's pretty much a no-brainer because no one's ever going to call and offer you a full-time staff writer job, Mm -hmm. (laughs) again, is what I thought. And so I I decided, you know, like I did it once. If I really wanted to go back to graduate school again, I still can, but I took that job. And so, and this kind of segs into, you know, the next stage of my career, which is I started work and I was a new mom. I mean, I started at that job when my daughter was eight weeks old. And I was a breastfeeding mom. So I was also a pumping mom. So I was pumping at the office two or three times a day. And the way I tell it, I basically was, I was thinking about food. I was eating food. I was writing food and I was producing food 24 hours a day. There was really no moment of my life that food wasn't present. And like, I was the food too. (laughs) And so after a few months, I was asked uh, to pitch some story ideas for a feature They were basically like, you've been on staff long enough that you need to write a feature. What do you want to write about? And I said, I'm really interested in breast milk. (laughs) And the way it landed in the editorial meeting was basically like a dead bird falling from the sky. (laughs) You know, the stranger is not known for stories about motherhood. The the thing that they're most well known for is for publishing Savage Love, which is Dan Savage's sex advice column. But I realized a few weeks later that no matter what I was going to write, I was going to research this and I was going to write about it. And there were a couple of things at play, which was that I felt I was actually kind of looking for motivation because while I loved breastfeeding in so many ways, I was really unprepared for how time consuming and how hard it would be and how draining it would be. And so I think I wanted to like find out more about it because women face tremendous pressure and I was definitely putting pressure on myself to keep going. And so, you know, women are always often told breast is best. And I was like, well, okay. And I do think, you know, breast milk is optimal nutrition for a baby. I mean, although if you're, if you give birth to a baby who's healthy, you know, full term here in the United States, the difference in health with breast milk and formula is not going to be as dramatic as it is if you're in another country with limited resources and, you know, limited access to clean water. Right. So part of it was that I just, 
I felt like when I would ask, you know, how does that work that breast is best? Like people tell you immunologically it's better for a baby. And when I asked what I thought was a very basic question, so how, how does that work exactly? No one could tell me. No one really had an explanation for that. And I really wanted to know how is that possible that it's immunologically better. And then I also like, you know, the food writer in me felt it was very much in line with my beat, which is, as I was saying, you know, food is a reflection of our culture and our values. And is breast milk that too? Like, how does that play into it? I didn't really know what I would find out. But so that's kind of how I, that's how I went into it. It was really like exploring this like first food kind of thing. And so I wrote this article because what I discovered was really fascinating to me. You know, breast milk is a really dynamic substance changes during the day with every feed because a mother's body is in real time responding to signals that the baby is sending that that come in through her breast and nipple and mammary gland receptors in the mammary gland which is sort of little known but mind-blowing science completely (laughs) mind-blowing I just my jaw was on the floor when I read that it's unbelievable yeah, and this is all really new. You know, we, what I discovered was that we haven't really valued these aspects of reproductive health and maternal health. So we don't know, a whole, you know, this is very, very new science. But when I found an evolutionary biologist who explained this to me and told me this, I thought, why isn't everyone talking about this, right? Because women's bodies are are incredible. What they are capable of is is this radical stuff. <laughs> and also this could be highly motivating to people who are struggling with breastfeeding, who, you know, maybe want to stop or who also just, you know, I just felt like we should be talking about this. And that's kind of how I ended up, you know, the success of this. I wrote this article on breast milk that I was hoping a few thousand people, a few hundred people in Seattle would read, right? But what happened was it turns out that I'm not the only person who had questions like this because the article went viral and it's, to this day, it's the most read article in the paper's history. It's amazing. Like millions of people have read it. Hundreds of thousands of people have shared it. And it's just, I mean, it's incredible to me. I never imagined that that would happen. And being able to, writing a book was an opportunity that came directly from the success of that article. But I didn't want to write a book just about breast milk. I had a lot of other questions about pregnant and birthing bodies, basically, you know, starting from before I had my first daughter, I had two miscarriages and I felt like no one really seemed to be able to talk to me about that or prepared to talk to me about that or explain why that might happen. I was really interested in what a placenta was (laughs) and this entirely new organ that I grew that I didn't think we were any, again, it was like, I just didn't feel like anyone was talking about this stuff enough. Right. Even the fact that it's an organ is not something that people talk about. Yeah. And I mean, people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense that it's an organ, but I never thought of it that way. And so in the process of writing this book, I just, you know, it means a lot to me what you said, the the really kind words that you had about the book, because the book is very much, I mean, I've become a lot more generous with myself and, and so much more appreciative of my body and of everyone's body in the writing of this book. Because to me, what I want people to take away from it is to really maybe that they could have a new appreciation and new sense of wonder for what their body is capable of and what your body does for you on a daily basis. We tend to focus on the things our bodies don't do right or the ways that it they make us feel bad, but it's really your body's job to keep you alive, you know? And that's something that I find myself saying to my daughter all the time is like, gosh, your body's so strong. Your body does such a good job of like 
keeping you alive and like helping you move through this world every day. And it's a really basic idea that I don't know. I feel like, like I said, I was a very loved child, but I, I actually, I really wish that I had heard that more as a child. I wish that I had heard that more as an adolescent. I wish that I had heard that more through my twenties. Yeah, I really didn't hear that enough growing up either. I don't think anybody does. And I feel like it's a radical notion now that I came across discussions like that in working in eating disorder treatment facilities and reading books about eating disorder recovery and this idea that your body is so much more than what it looks like. It's keeping you here. It's got all these amazing processes that go on behind the scenes without your even paying any attention or any conscious effort to it. Like, you know, yeah. your heart beating, your lungs breathing, your liver clearing out whatever you take in, like all this stuff is happening without your intervention. Yeah, it's a tremendous amount of work and you by nature are amazing. Yeah, <laughs> like amazing. I really feel like we need to, it sounds so, it sounds sort of, you know, touchy-feely, feel good, but it's so, it's true and we don't hear it enough. And so I'm, you know, unabashed let's talk about how great and how cool bodies are, (laughs) you know, like, and bodies are amazing too. Like the other thing that strikes me about bodies is that they're, they're incredible in their uniformity, but in their unlimited diversity, (laughs) you know, infinite diversity, there's no one right body to have. There's no one way to have a body. We all have them. And so I don't know why we're spending all this time feeling conflicted about them, you know, or that they're supposed to be a certain way. Most bodies are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing all the time and even the things that can go wrong with bodies or the problems that we have with them or you know or conditions or illnesses are still like that's normal too (laughs) you know like not everything works completely properly Oh, that's such a great point. And I feel like that also, you do a great job of acknowledging that in your book as well and talking about the nuances and sort of like the politics around defining what is a normal pregnancy or even, you know, breastfeeding versus formula, like that that is, that there's just so much pressure on people to like do things perfectly and on on women and femmes to have, you know, or people, anyone giving birth even, like transgender mm-hmm. folks who are giving birth, there is so much pressure to do it the quote-unquote right way and the quote-unquote normal way. And I've really never seen a book. I mean, even like the subtitle, the the word feminist is in the subtitle of your book. I feel like I've never seen a book like that about pregnancy and postpartum. Like it's just not, just doesn't happen. Yeah. And you know, during the writing of the book, I remember thinking like, am I really, someone has to have written about this in this way before, right? But there, there really isn't a book that does that. And I didn't sell the, when I, I mean, I sold the book on proposal and there was, feminist was nowhere in the title or subtitle. That wasn't part of it. I mean, in hindsight, it was always going to be an intersectional feminist book because that's who I am. And so that's my perspective. But um, I didn't set out to do that. I mean, part of what brought that on was that I wrote, I started writing the book and then the election happened. So, you know, we were really in real time, you know, on a 24-7 news cycle, I was watching how, you know, the very personhood of women, women identifying people, trans women, not, you know, gender non-binary people was really just being, that was like up for debate. (laughs) And, you know, when we were talking about repealing the ACA and not providing maternity care, you know, and that was really prenatal care. And so that, that became part of the message, you know, more explicitly. And thankfully, my editor was on board with that. 
But part of that too is what she said was, you know, like it's 2018 and there is no book that is talking about pregnancy explicitly from this point of view. And it's about time. Seriously. It's ridiculous that that it doesn't exist already. (laughs) I mean, now it does. So that's awesome. But yeah, took, took enough time to get there. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, in your research, how because it, it does have your book does have this beautiful message of like body acceptance really woven through and just you know the the all the nuances of that too like accepting that sometimes your body isn't going to work as intended or as as you think it should right or and that you know we accept all of the the sort of being like ripped apart really of pregnancy and and putting yourself back together and how challenging that is and and just I think you give such a real look at that process what was that like for you to sort of channel that and relive it it sounds like you know it sounds like you've you put a lot of there's a lot of memoir in there too right of your own experience yeah that was honestly it was hard it was not that was another thing that I didn't I didn't sell the book as having that much (laughs) memoir in it and I didn't anticipate it but what happened was that you know, when I was writing about birth, I was trying to write about how there's no, you know, we give birth two ways. One is not inherently better than the other. And that was coming from like, you know, I had planned for an unmedicated vaginal birth with my first daughter. And that was definitely not what happened to me. You know, I'm lucky because I had really great care. And so I didn't feel the amount of trauma or like shame or guilt that I know a lot of people struggled with. But at the same time, it wasn't easy. It wasn't always easy for me to accept. Um, and so when I started writing about birth, well, what happened was that I just, what I realized in writing about pregnancy and motherhood, this stuff is so personal. And it almost felt disingenuous to not include my own story. And it also felt like when I read it, you know, when I tried to do it without really putting myself in, with kind of hiding myself, it just didn't seem as credible. You know, I I felt like I had to, you know, like throw some of my own skin in the game, right? And it wasn't so much that I thought people would identify or that I needed them to like hear my story. I wanted, I almost wanted them to relate to, you know, maybe this didn't happen to you, but can you relate to the feeling of, of having lost control of your body? And I think, you know, that's the power of storytelling, which is really that when you can make an emotional connection or if you can get someone to connect on an emotional level, then it's, then it's easier to you know, I had all this science and this, you know, political stuff that I wanted to put in. And it it was, it's almost easier to, to give people that information or they're more open to it if they feel connected in some way. But it was really, it was difficult. And I went through multiple drafts and, you know, I interviewed lots of, I interviewed different people who had experiences different from my own. And I was really moved and really taken aback at how much people were willing to share with me. And it was really like their being willing to do that that kind of also told me like, okay, I have to really, I have to go all the way in some ways. But definitely, you know, writing about my body, writing about birth, writing about, you know, my postpartum body, sex, like stuff like that. It was not, I don't know, like it, it didn't come totally naturally and it definitely was work. It's, it's work that I'm glad that I did. And I now I feel like I feel like I've, you know, it's also like after giving birth, I feel like I crossed a threshold, like TMI is not a concept that really like is anything for me anymore. There's no such thing, right? (laughs) And so that that was part of it too. You know, like I feel like now I'm in this territory where it's actually kind of all I want to write about or 
not just me, but writing about bodies and, and, and exploring that stuff. Cause I, again, I don't think we talk about it as much as we should. And I, you know, the other thing I'll say is that I have a really close friend and I don't know if she's been on your podcast, but you're probably familiar with her work. Her name is Lindy West. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. She's been on the podcast. Totally. So Lindy and I have known each other for years, but we've been friends for over a decade. And I think, you know, she's my favorite person to have lunch with. And we had many lunches while I was writing my book, like while she was writing her book. And she's someone who has definitely, like she's with so many people, she's done this for so many people, but she's inspired me. And, you know, she being generous with yourself, like she, there's, she talks a lot about how, you know, in terms of writing about being fat, like that started from when she had this realization. She like, but what about the life that I have now that I'm already living? Like, what if I just decided to be present in the moment and go from there? And that's something that I've thought about a lot. And then also, you know, when I was writing about myself, the way that she does that, it's very brave and it's also very vulnerable. But that was a direct inspiration to me as well. Yeah, she's amazing. She is. <laughs> I'm curious in your work around women's bodies and pregnancy and giving birth, there's so much body shaming, you know, size shaming specifically, right? Weight stigma that gets wrapped up in the discourse around pregnancy and birth. And yeah. what did you see both personally and in the people that you interviewed was people's experiences of this size policing that happens in pregnancy? Yeah, well, I mean... It starts very early. I mean, I think we're all more generally aware of the conversation, you know, postpartum. And there's a lot of people who reject this, you know, get your body back because there's just, that's just not really totally possible. Sorry, it's not. <laughs> like, and if it is for you, great. But for most people, it's not. Right. It's this false promise of like, <laughs> yeah, turning back the clock. I think that, you know, it's, it's worth spending some time talking about how early that begins. I mean, I'm someone who is a little bit bigger, definitely has curves, big breasts and a tummy. <laughs> but I remember early on, he was saying, you know, you weight gain or something. It was like typically people, you know, people gain anywhere from like to like pounds. And he was like, we'd really, I'd like to see you based on your weight now, probably, you know, be on the lower end of that. And, you know, I, I have a great doctor who generally like does not make me has never made me feel bad about my body. But I felt a little bit like, huh, well, that's weird. Like, what does that mean? Right. And I don't think we talk enough about how larger people, plus sized people in pregnancy, we don't like, we don't really see depictions of larger sized people, even though not everyone is thin with like this perfect baby belly that just juts out, you know, like a lot of people show pregnancy differently or don't, their bodies are such that they don't you know, you don't always know that they're pregnant until later, right? Or they're just not the same obvious signs that, that we consider normal in our culture. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's that. We don't talk enough about how people of all different sizes get pregnant. And that's change and that shows up in different ways. But I think, yeah, of course, there's always like the don't gain too much weight too, right? There's that you should eat if you're eating for two, but don't gain too much weight. It's such a like razor's edge that people have to walk. Yeah. And then there's always in the back of your mind too, if you gain too much weight, then it'll probably be really hard to lose it all. Right. So then there's this, and I think that's an outgrowth too of the general way that we approach pregnancy, which is we like, we police pregnant women and we tend to think of pregnancy instead of this 
incredibly life affirming thing because you literally are pulsing and overflowing with life <laughs> and oxygen and blood and you know and fluids and all of that and hair you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't really talk about it in that way we talk about it in terms of limiting your behavior you know not not gaining too much weight and don't not pushing yourself too hard so i think that that's a problem you know <laughs> like, it's a big problem and also i mean i think there's that piece of policing people's weight and size and there's also the piece of policing what they eat while pregnant like you're you're gonna you have to take exquisite care of your baby by never letting a processed food pass your lips and always be eating like the exact right balance of things and meanwhile so many people's pregnancy experience is like well i can't stomach any sort of vegetable right like it's mm -hmm. it just disgusts me and so all I'm eating is saltines or pizza or whatever <laughs> you know like and also I mean and get, like to go back to this idea that every day your body is doing so much work when you're pregnant that is doubly true yes. right and you the output the metabolic <laughs> output of your body is you know at the end of pregnancy women and pregnant people are functioning at a, like their metabolic rate is two times what it usually is, right? So sometimes baby needs a Whopper Junior. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and like, I think that's okay, right? Like, why don't we talk about that? That it's also, I think about something a friend of mine says, which is everything in moderation, including moderation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that there's like a way of, um, you know, instead of thinking about it limiting, right? You can think about it in terms of like, some weeks, like you're really gonna want bagels a day, right? And like, it's okay. Like this is a really unique situation that you are in when you are pregnant and there's no right or wrong way to do it. Right. Like, so you're probably not going to eat bagels every day for your entire pregnancy. Right. And you can go back to like, okay, now I'm, you know, like you might like listening to your body and, and realizing that it's okay. There's no one way to do it. And day to day, like you might crave different things and it's, that's okay. <laughs> Right. And that it does all balance out, that it's not something you need to stress about or that you're not irreparably harming, you're not harming your baby at all by like eating a Whopper if that's what you want, you know, yeah. the, like those, I mean, I'm, my philosophy of nutrition is intuitive eating and it's really about learning. I mean, it's, there's so much more to it than this, but like learning mm -hmm. to tune into your body's wisdom and, and listen to what it wants. And that includes hunger and fullness cues that includes pleasure and satisfaction and what's, what's making you excited. What do you crave? What do you want to eat? And like going for that, you know, because ultimately once you get rid of all the diet culture, the internalized bullshit from diet culture, basically, mm -hmm. you can actually listen to those cues such that a lot of people fear that, oh, if I listen to what I want and like let my body have what it wants, I'm only going to be eating brownies for the rest of my life. And right. like, and it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> you're going to get sick of brownies. Like, yeah. You're, and your body really does. Like there are times when I, you know, I'm a, I'm a well-known over-orderer. <laughs> and my husband is always like, I think that four dishes is enough. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? But the truth is like, I mean, I, you know, but I love leftovers and I love taking stuff home, but it's true. Like my body does tell me that I'm done, that I'm full, that I'm getting full. <laughs> and it's a thing that, you know, I've, I now know that, right. And we trust that. But I think that, you know, it's definitely that principle is, can be applied to pregnancy because I think, again, because of the way our culture really polices pregnant women and pregnant bodies, we are kind of actively told not to trust ourselves, you know? And I think that if we got to a place where we could trust ourselves more, 
and also assume that we are all doing the best we can and looking out for our own health and our fetus's health, you know, then that would free us, right? To like have a salad one day and have an entire frozen pizza the next, if that's what we want. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's, that's such good advice too, in terms of allowing yourself to just shut out all the rules, shut out all the noise that's coming from diet culture. Cause really this, mm-hmm. this aspect of like the incursions into pregnant people's bodies and stuff is really diet culture coming mm-hmm. in, you know, with the food and size policing. Yeah. And what would it be like if you could just limit that stuff and only go for, I mean, it's, it's so complicated parsing out what is legit science. Like what do we actually have evidence to back up and what mm-hmm. is sort of an old, wives tale like the the stuff about drinking right like your your book really is so fascinating on that front because the advice to completely cut out alcohol just doesn't seem to have any bearing on actual science you know and there's lots of stuff like that yeah i mean it's really a public health policy again about limitations (laughs) than it is about what does science actually say and i think that that's another thing that's important and in pregnancy is that we have a growing body of information and scientific knowledge, but we don't have as much as we should. We haven't valued this stuff enough to really study it. And so there's a lot that we're just figuring out. And so a lot of times things that are told to us as rules, they're not really like someone made up that rule. (laughs) And I think it's, again, we don't have all of the scientific knowledge that we should to like declare all of these things. Um, And so I think it's always worth asking questions. I like to tell people to ask questions and to expect answers and to engage in a conversation. You know, no, a really good healthcare provider should not be threatened by a patient who asks questions. It should be a dialogue that you have. And that's, it's easier said than done. You know? <laughs> but um, I think that it's really, especially in terms of pregnancy, the answers that were traditionally given are not necessarily always rooted in a very wide body of established knowledge. Absolutely. I'm just thinking too about like body size recommendations in pregnancy because those are really not rooted in good evidence. And, you know, so many people will say, well, you're like quote unquote obese, so you're not allowed to gain any weight or whatever. Or like, oh, you really should be losing weight in pregnancy, which is just absurd. And that's what I mean. We don't talk about that enough. No. We really don't. Or the fact that people in larger bodies can have perfectly healthy pregnancies, you know, or pregnancies that maybe maybe they do have some complications, but also people in smaller bodies have pregnancies with complications. And at the end of the day, they still end up with a baby. Like, it's not that you're... I was just watching an episode of This Is Us, which I have a very complex relationship with because the character of Kate is, you know, this larger bodied woman who her whole storyline kind of revolves around the fact that she hates her body and that she wants to lose weight. And her weight is like another character basically in this, Mm. in this story. And the, well, spoiler alert, I guess, but the episode I was watching last night was like, she is wanting to get IVF and goes to this doctor who's like, well, your weight, it's really too much of a risk. And you can't, we, you know, you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone who's going to, going to take you on as a client or whatever. And like, That is, I mean, in a way that it's probably good that they're showing that because that's a reality that so many people trying to get pregnant face when they're in larger bodies, but it's just not true. Like it's just, it's 
ridiculous that there's this barrier to care and it's coming from just weight biased interpretations of the research. People in larger bodies might have higher risks of certain things, but people in larger bodies have higher risks of many things, not because the larger body size causes those things necessarily. We don't know the causal relationship between body size and health outcomes, but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that weight stigma is a mediating factor there where Mm -hmm. weight stigma might actually be causing the health outcomes that we're seeing in people in larger bodies. And yet the weight is getting blamed. Yeah. I mean, to live in a larger body is, you know, to be stressed about things more often. And, you know, cortisol has bad effects on the body. And we understand that. Yeah, I'm fully on board with that. I don't think we do enough. Like, fat bodies are very good bodies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're perfectly capable bodies. And they can do lots of different things. And they can grow a baby. Yes. They can grow a kick-ass baby. (laughs) (laughs) I had a client who had, yeah, I've had actually a number of clients who've had struggles getting pregnant and then come to work with me and and started intuitive eating and so dropped the restrictions that they were engaging in, dropped the diets, like stopped doing the restrict binge cycle that they were on and just learning to really nourish themselves and trust their bodies and trust their hunger. And then lo and behold, get pregnant after like difficulty conceiving for a while. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. And I know many colleagues of mine have had similar experiences in their clinical work. And there is some evidence to show that when people are restricting their eating, when their body fat stores get too low for them, even if they're in a larger body, even if they're quote unquote obese on the BMI scale, but their body fat stores are too low for their particular body, they're going to have trouble conceiving. And once they let go of those restrictions and allow their body to to settle where it wants to be, it's going to become a lot easier. Yeah. Just fascinating how that evidence doesn't get out there and people mm-hmm. are just sort of recycling these same old, I mean, it happens with across the board in healthcare with body size, really, that yeah. these sort of old saws keep getting trotted out like, well. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too that I, when my research in the book that is really, I was thinking about this earlier and it's worth mentioning how I mean, our very definitions of science and therefore medicine and health, they're not inclusive, right? Like for centuries, the territory of biology, human biology was were white male bodies. You know, female bodies were seen as like a deviation from the norm, right? And, you know, this is something that really like this always sticks with me. So it wasn't until 1993 that Congress passed a law saying that women and minorities had to be included in clinical trials that receive funding from the federal government. And that's like most clinical trials. <laughs> right. But I mean, that to me, just right there it is. Like our very institutions, right? In 1993, that was 25 years ago. It's ridiculous. Right? Yeah. Like how did it take that long? Ugh. Yeah. Again, like our ideas of what health are, we're not, are not including much of the population. And so I think, you know, when we're like, when you're saying like we recycle this, like this, these old saws, right? It's because it's been, it's been that way for centuries and it, but it should not stay that way. Like we're at a place where we need to be talking about progressing past that. Absolutely. And I think that books like yours really help add to that conversation because it's, you're writing this book from an intersectional feminist place. And that is something that does not exist in the pregnancy literature, but should. And same with science, you know, there needs to be more research done on like super fat bodies and bodies of color and people, you know, people of all different backgrounds and just sort of 
testing hypotheses that have been taken as fact in because of the research based on white male subjects, you know, and seeing does that actually hold true for people in different kinds of bodies? Yeah. Well, I love talking with you. This is so great. And I, I love your book. And I'm so happy you're out there doing the work that you do. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for sharing your own story with me. Oh, absolutely. Can you tell us where people can find you and learn more about the book? Sure. Um, I have a website. It's AngelaGarbez.com. And you can find a lot of information about my book and events and my social media right there. Fabulous. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes too so people can find it and learn more about your book. And I recommend that everybody go out and get it. Even if you're not thinking about becoming pregnant or pregnant, it's still really a great read and I think very instructive as to what people go through in order to put new life on this planet. <laughs> Relevant to everyone. That's what I like to say. Everyone's yes. been born. <laughs> right, exactly. You all you all endured that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It'll give you a new appreciation for whoever produced you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you so much, Angela. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Angela Garbus for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. You can also follow me on Instagram for a daily dose of anti-diet inspiration. My handle is Christy Harrison, where the first I is a one. That's C-H-R-1-S-T-Y Harrison. So it's Instagram.com slash C-H-R-1-S-T-Y Harrison. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 174. That's christyharrison.com slash 174. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, become an intuitive eater, and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my food psych programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Bullies want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house?